Well, good evening, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 52. This is actually the one-year anniversary of the Rattlecast. We've done them every week since last first week of August. Um, and as always, um, I like to say, uh, Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. Uh, we just do this because we love poetry, which is why we do everything that we do. And if you love poetry too, please uh, click the like button and uh, share no matter where you're watching this, whether it's Facebook, Periscope, YouTube, um, later after the fact, and iTunes, um, give it a rating. Whatever you do helps um, with the distribution because that's the way the uh, internet works, is that the more things, the more people click on stuff, the more people are shown stuff, and um, we're just all better off that way. Now, tonight's guest is a, um, a great guest for the uh, one-year anniversary of the Rattlecast because it's James Reagan who um, um, ha has real ties to, to Rattle going way back. So we'll talk about that a little bit maybe. Uh, but first, as everybody comes in and gathers around the TV, here is your warm-up poem. And as always, I clicked on um, the random button up at rattle.com. And it came up with this Emily on Tuesday, which is interesting. It's a very different style than James Reagan has. Um, very sort of simple and straightforward and not, um, and not, not that lyricism that uh, James Reagan is known for. It's a different kind of poetry, which is a kind of poem we published a long time. This is Ken Holland reading Emily on Tuesday. And uh, this is from the Single Parent Poets issue. And uh, so here it is. This is uh, Emily on Tuesday. Emily on Tuesday. Saturday night, my daughter told me how much Parmesan to mix in the Alfredo. She prefers her fettuccine al dente. She is smug and confident and in my face. If we haven't rented a movie, she'll watch commercials and point out which models I should date. Emily, I want to ask her, how is it you know so much? I mean, what did I know at seven? I want to ask her, but that's not something I can do on a Tuesday. So that was Emily on Tuesday from um, our Single Parent Poets issue, read number 41. And I don't really know much about Ken Holland, uh, but I looked up his bio and all I could find really um, it said somewhere that he works for a New York City publishing house, which is interesting because if you have micro if, uh, headphones like I do, you could hear the sounds of the New York City taxis and stuff in the background as he read that. I'm not sure, depending on your speakers, if you could hear that. But um, there's an interesting addition to that poem. Now, uh, as I mentioned, our guest for today is uh, James Reagan. And um, James Reagan is, um, he was interviewed in Rattle number 12. Um, he's an internationally recognized poet, playwright, screenwriter, and essayist. He's got a PhD from Ohio University and two honorary PhDs. Um, he's, um, he was the director of the professional writing program at USC. Um, he's been teaching for 27 summers as distinguished professor of poetry and film at Charles U in Prague. He's published in 15 languages, 30 anthologies, and has authored 10 books of poetry, including The Hunger Wall, Too Long a Solitude, and his most recent here, The Chanter's Read, which just came out. Um, and he's a poet who's really been around the world and done some amazing things in literature, and we'll talk about some of that later. Um, also in film and drama, um, in his newest book here, I'll show it on the screen, is The Chanter's Read, which is just out from Salmon Poetry. You can find that at Salmon 
poetry.com. And uh, here he is, James Reagan. Hey, Jim, how are you doing? How are you doing, Tim? Pleasure to be here. Oh, it's, it, the pleasure is mine. Um, so one of the things, just to start out, I was wondering, um, you have an intimate connection with Rattle, um, and I'm not sure how much this story is apocryphal or, or how much is true, but as I heard it, um, Alan Fox, who founded Rattle, for those watching at home, um, um, was a real estate man and a lawyer and um, met you on a cruise around 1990 or so. Mm-hmm. And you talked him into going to the MPW program um, at USC, <laughs> and then he loved it, and so ended up taking classes with Jack Grapes after he, he graduated with his MPW, and that's where Rattle came from. So if you didn't meet him on a cruise, there might not be a Rattle. It's completely possible. It's one of those strange coincidences. That's the story I heard. Is that story true? <laughs> well, well, that part of it, I'm sure, is the, the wonderful part of it was it's, uh, Alan became a student of mine. And he also did his thesis with me, his, uh, his graduate master's degree thesis. And uh, we became friends from that point on. We've been lifelong friends uh, going back to those years. So, And he was a great, uh, how do you say, philanthropist and contributor to our program in terms of scholarships, everything. So this makes this is not a surprise to me of how much effort and um, vision he had in even starting Rattle. Uh, he became a wonderful poet, published, and, and has done so well. He's done his own share of interviews all over the mm-hmm. world. Uh, so, you know, I'm a great admirer of Alan's. Well, do you want to start us out with a poem? Um, you wanted to read um, for each of us first. Is that what you want to start out with? Yeah, I'll, I'll do that because it says something about the world travels that I've been fortunate enough to do. And in this case, uh, I was invited to, to go to... Um, it was on in the Far East. I had to go and read uh, for the Prime Minister there of uh, Korea. And I realized how much traveling I had been doing and how busy it was and how exhausting it was. So when I came back home, I remember my son Jameson was on the floor playing with knights and castles and jumping things over. I remember getting down with him and doing it and thinking, this is simplicity. This is a life I want. This is wonderful. So I wrote it to him and for him and about that. And so when people say, would you live your life the same? I say, absolutely. But I pay attention to the simple things. Hmm. And so this is called If For Each Of Us. If for each of us, a rope could swing us long and light across the widening trough of all that fails us in our lives. I would want to land upon the Isle of Echo, lush with repetition, green with being original in birth, and twice the twin, a wave might dance along the scurry. I would want a canyon tall for hawks to carry long the deep tattoo of voices on the air. I would want an ear to Hear what words to read again to memory, what verse to carol, thoughts to root. Before the sparrow's flight the mind has taken comes to rest on truth. I would want to hear a vowel repeat in consonance with alliteration's frothy throat. And should the landing fill its footing, I would want to know what inspiration in shorter flight one syllable might repeat. As in the swash the flat stone makes to skip across the light in water, or the voice the wind gives to birch and linden. I would want the distance to all understanding to narrow just enough to fail 
had failed it. I would want a melody of chances to learn to love again what first I dreamed, free as wonder, soft as touch, and of all things simple, to care again for them as much. It's a beautiful poem, as, as all your poems are, Jim. You have such a, an elegant style um, and so lyrical. Um, and well, the, the important thing about this poem, too, is I read it in many of the countries I had been invited to read at or visit, and many of the ambassadors would always ask, including one American president, asked to have the copy of that poem because of the one line, I would want the distance to all understanding to narrow just enough to fail at failure because this is what they as diplomats were trying to do. Yeah, that's such a great line. And that's what I was about to say is that um, um, you know, so much your poetry has those, those amazing lines that are very memorable and original. And um, so I've always yeah. wondered about your creative process. Um, how, how many revisions do you go through with these poems? Do, do you, are you a very slow writer? Because it feels like you really put every word through the ringer. You know, and uh... I do, I do, Tim. You, you've got it right. Uh, I remember uh, even talking about Alan and meeting him on a cruise. I was asked to be a speaker on many of the cruises from Amsterdam to Budapest. I had to do them from Moscow to uh, to St. Petersburg. And so when they learned, oh my God, our speaker is a poet. Oh my God, this is going to be horrible. I win them the first night. I say to them, look, it takes me sometimes thirty to fifty revisions on a poem. And sometimes it'll take me six months to a year to find the poem. Now, I'll be writing on others at the same time. But the important thing is sometimes a poem will just come and hit and I'll have it in two weeks to three. But if it takes me 50 revisions to find that poem or six months to a year to find it, and why would I expect you to get it in one reading? And they all go, oh, my God, you mean we're not stupid? No. Read the poem again and again. And this is what I do. That's part of my process. I want to hear it. I want to hear what's extraneous. I want to hear the music or the rhythm or the image. And I, I visualize it at the same time. And I said, and do you know on these cruises, I, they would they would corral me in the, in the, in the uh, hallways and say, look, I wrote another poem. <laughs> So I never did that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny because we do a, a prompt poem every week. So we have a new poem every week that we crank out. Um, you know, we have an open mic after the show. Um, right. And um, yeah, so it's definitely not spending four months on it or five months or something, which is something for everybody <laughs> to remember as that, um, right. you know, writing poetry takes time sometimes. Um, yeah. Uh, do you want to read maybe another poem or two right now? Well, you just mentioned Prague. Was that yeah. it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so I did write a poem called The Hunk. This is called The Hunger Wall. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, I think it's probably the second, third poem that I yeah. gave you on that. But um, The Hunger Wall has to do with the fact that in Prague, uh, there is a wall that comes down the hill to the River Vltava. And uh, when I was first there, I remember asking a waitress, uh, what is that? And she said, oh, that's Hladova Zed, that's The Hunger Wall. Wall. King Charles IV felt sorry for the poor, so he had them build this wall just so he could pay them. So it was the first public works project in history, something we need right now, by the way. But anyway, uh, so in knowing this, I we had just gone through our riots in Los Angeles. I guess it was around 1994. Was that what it was? 1992, 94. 
And uh, we were suffering through that. And it was a kind of widening abyss between the rich and the poor. So that when I went over to Prague to teach that summer, that was the summer that Slovakia had split from the Czech Republic in a similar way. Poorer Slovakia from the richer Prague, uh, Czech Republic. So the poem came out of that. It's called The Hunger Wall. And uh, I, I do, uh, you know, enjoy reading this too because Václav Havel, who I had befriended on a literary level, was very much uh, enamored of the poem. He really did, did like this poem. After walking to the bridge at Karlova, we found the river where at dusk the swans dipped their beaks into the falls for sanctuary. The trees close in for shade. He goes, we gaze through the opposite hill, a single light from a room growing thick with sadness. Solemn smoke now cooked the evening meal. We were just about to treat our hunger well when out of sunlight undeclared, a shaded mass of stone began to stretch its neck along the slope. It would scan the water for a quarter hour before the foliage rubbed its throat some Internal hunger now assuaged. For only moments, then again, the impulse thumbed like whalebone on a drum. The poplars began to rustle. A hawk, spiraling like an aspen deep in chatter, betrayed its nest to block the sun. The dam below rose up to boulder water, as if to show how easily wars are won. They feed the hunger wall, the waitress points, the fingers in her skirt rubbing coins, her hands are shoring up to feed the past. I don't want the poor to endure me, she said, King Charles said to those he paid. As he watched their faces building borders, hunger for a wall. As she faced the smoldering Vokava River, watching hunger well. Yeah, so that was The Hunger Wall, one of James Ragan's classic poems uh, from his book, self or, um called the hunger wall um yeah from grove grove like that one right away grove Bridge. yeah yeah um so so do you want to talk about your background a little bit um coming from um czechoslovakia um i think well, you were born in, in in pittsburgh right but then and went back that, often because your family were had just immigrated over right 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 yeah i went over i think i was about 17 i received a um student fulbright which took me, I had a choice to either go to Time Magazine and intern there, or uh, this was, I just came out of high school, or uh, go and work at a publishing house in Munich, Germany. Well, I did my geography, Munich, Austria, <laughs> Bratislava, villages. <laughs> so I took Munich, and, uh, and from there I was able to go there for the first time. Now, then after that, many other times. In fact, I had another Fulbright, a, a professorship, to Ljubljana in Slovenia, where my wife was able to go with me as well, and uh, Deborah, and we uh, we were uh, convinced by the embassy there that if I go and do this, because I had agreed to do a candlelight reading. This was in the middle of the Cold War and communism in in the Eastern Bloc countries like Slovakia. I was going to do a candlelight reading in darkness and a candlelight in Bratislava. Would I agree to take 10 Time magazines <laughs> over and Newsweek oh, wow. magazine in a false bottom of my suitcase? And of course, you know me. I said, yes, I'll do it. I mean, how foolish of me at the time. But this was how we fought against communism. I was smuggling American magazines in. So I did it. 
I did my reading. You should have seen the people grabbing for truth. Mm. Grabbing for truth. They were elbowing each other to get a copy. And then I continued on my journey to my villages. And uh, this was how I gave back to my, my native family country uh, by making sure that I was a dissident who acted and not just spoke about it. So, uh, yeah, I, I go back as often as I can and that uh, that's part of my heritage. And um, this was at the worst time of Putin's KGB running uh, the KGB during those periods uh, from the 70s, well, earlier than that, what am I saying? Uh, from 48 all the way up to 89 when Berlin Wall fell, it was under communist rule. Yeah, yeah. And and your poems were passed around as Samizdat, right? I mean, like they yes, were exactly. not allowed to be to be translated or, or published. Um, right. I was banned. I was banned. And, uh, um, and then later on, my book was published after 1989 in Czech and in, in Slovak. So finally, I got it, but it was still translated quite a bit and, and spread around but i was i was banned i had to go to every village i visited in czechoslovakia at the time i had to report to the police i had to come in sign in that i was in their city in their village that's how much control they had over people that they felt might be dissidents in the country and hobble himself was one of the biggest i mean he he went to jail for what he fought for and i was able to escape because i had an american passport and and i later on kept going in with missionaries so mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i just happened to they read this week it. a hovel's essay on the green grocer i don't know if, if you're familiar with that but um but yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so um one, one of the things that was interesting though is that you were invited to the first international poetry festival in moscow um in 1984 right. wow. i think it was 84, 85, 85 yeah 85. yeah um how did how did in 84 i was on my fulbright to Ljubljana. Mm -hmm. And the next year, I was invited to go there and read. Yeah. Yeah. How did that come to be? Because you, um, you, you, you invited by was it Gorbachev that invited you? And yes. then, by Gorbachev had it in his mind that he would bring, try to bring the West and the East together, not just through political means, through, through Vasnos and Perestroika, but also with the arts. And so it was his idea to put an international first poetry reading, and he asked Yevtushenko the Soviet a wonderful poet and a friend uh, to, uh, how would you say it, I guess, to choreograph it in the way of inviting. And so he invited me to be one of the poets through Gorbachev. And then uh, also Seamus Haney from Ireland was the other one from the Western state cultures. And also Robert Bly. There were three of us. And then the last was Bob mm -hmm. Dylan. Yeah. And Bob, Bob was wonderful in the ship. They loved him. They loved him. I mean, he... He's one of the most humble, and, and there was so much humility coming out of him. But it wasn't long before that that John Lennon had been uh, killed. And so he had a lot of trepidation of being hmm. there because we would be in these gauntlets running through them so that he can get to the car. And the people just wanted autographs and all. But he was wonderful about it. But I did something there that uh, uh, I remember when I left, when I read. I read right after him, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. Can you imagine the audience, Tim, looking at the stage and going, oh, my God, there's Seamus Haney, Nobel Prize winner. My, Robert Bly, Rob, Bob Dylan, my God. Who the hell is that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was me. So I'm following Dylan and they're loving him. And I realized that, wait a minute, I speak Russian. 
I knew because my first language is Slovak. We only spoke it at home. And I knew with my studies in Russian, some of it was similar. So I got up in front of this 10,000 people in a hockey stadium. And I said, uh, you know, uh, my mother and father were born in Slovakia. Yevgeny Yeptashenko, who was my translator, in Moscow, he is my brother. The place went crazy. <laughs> and I can tell you, who do you think the press went to the interview all the time? Me. So then I really had to brush up on my Russian. <laughs> yeah. so, so Dylan was so kind. I remember coming off stage, he said, Jim, and I, I know he doesn't mind my repeating this because it showed so much of his humility. He said, Jim, I don't belong here. I said, you don't belong here. What are you talking about? You're, you've read to 100,000 people to call a scene. He said, no, 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 no. These are world-class poets. I'm a songwriter. And when he said that, later on, the LA Times I was reviewing for them asked if I would review his uh, collected lyrics for his music. And in it, I started with that little anecdote and showed where all his poetry mm -hmm. was. Yeah, I yeah, it's, it's kind of visionary. You know, he'd end up becoming, of course, the Nobel Prize, Nobel laureate in literature. Prize winner, yeah, Nobel yeah. Prize winner. I was right way back then, <laughs> and he was my seatmate. He was my seatmate at times on our buses when they were touring us through the whole country. We went everywhere in Russia because uh, Deborah, my wife, was pregnant with our first daughter, Tara, and so couldn't make the trip. But I used to sit with Dylan, and um, and so we we got to be, you know, on very good terms and very social way. And uh, but I, I admired him and I, I was the first to want to congratulate him for the Nobel special. Yeah, and, and what was it like reading for uh, 10,000 people, which, um, you know, very few poets can relate to? Like normally at a reading, you would, um, you know, you sort of connect and like make eye contact with certain people. And there's only like 20 people in the room usually. Um, what is it like for uh, a stadium? Well, what happened, too, was there are the, the Russian poets read also, not just four of us from the West. And so they made it much more comfortable for us in many ways. And I felt the confidence with Yeptushenko there that we were, we were there as diplomats in our own way, as ambassadors of the arts in our own way, because we had to meet with all the writers and all of that. So I think at that point, um, it was, there. you know, you can see it would have been nervous, but, but you, you passed over it very quickly because... They they really accepted mm -hmm. us. They really welcomed Dylan. For example, they were screaming and yelling, happy to hear his music, because it wasn't allowed, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you know, it was once in a lifetime experience, and I'm very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Such a great. I I, I wrote. My God, uh, I can tell you this. I came back. I came back from, from that trip. And we were at the LAX. I'll never forget this. We were exhausted. It was a 14-hour, I don't know how long it was. We were exhausted. And as we were waiting for our luggage to come down onto the carousel, uh, a book of poetry came flying down by Rilke. Rilke's poetry came down on the conveyor belt. And I can watch all the people looking at this book and then back to their luggage. And there was the book and then the luggage. There was the book. There was the luggage. And I thought, oh, my God, this was probably the first time most of them were actually forced to acknowledge literature. <laughs> well, you have that, that I wrote, poem. Do you I wanna... wrote a poem. I'll read yeah, it do you want to read that? Like. Real okay. comic and beer belted LAX. Okay, let me, let me find it and first. I love this poem. It, <laughs> it, it's, it's been translated quite a bit. I, I uh, think it's just because of the, the, the subject matter. Uh, 
but it's it's one I like. A rick of pages, it falls hardly noticed into motion. And down the track unspined, it cycles time between a rucksack and laundry. A book no thicker than a wallet or a comb. It is the unworthy carry-on newly bought, colliding with a carpet bag or a streamer on the unlikely navigation into being where it's not. Each passenger has watched it circle more than once, a bold intrusion into the archipelago of things familiar. There's no fixed point of concentration, no laughter, no elation when the eyes dissect the slow descent of baggage into orbit. As if by taking up an orange strap, each handler slews a body to the spars of his shoulder. Had Rilke himself fallen, unbound, lying in the United States, he would have passed unnoticed by the baggage check or porter who failed to think it odd or such a pity to tag him at the lost and found. How many miles had his words trespassed? How many cities alive, unread among so many ports of authority? A gold leaf of art, so grand in the pall of memory, it gives the mind encouragement to survive. Unless, unsung like a soldier's duffel duty bound, fear spreads its tarp along the spine of language. Creation can end this way, abrupt or final, like travel to the ends of the world with no intent or vision of destination. Yeah, that's one of my... And that I specifically wrote about the censorship that was running in not only in, in uh, Russia and Soviet Union uh, and in Czechoslovakia and the rest of them, but also... I think uh, I've forgotten the congressman who was introducing censorship into the schools and the libraries and stopping books from being read. So the book really dealt, that last stanza dealt with that part. Yeah, that, that plays into something I was going to ask about because the, the, you know, the idea of reading in front of 10,000 people um, in other countries and, and being so loved, like you're, you're so supported by the uh, government of Czechoslovakia more than any poet probably in the United States is supported by the government here, I think. Um, why, why do you think it is that um, poetry is appreciated more, especially in Eastern European countries, but South American countries too? Yeah. I think it just gets back to that word truth. It just starts there. They've been under so, many sub, so much subjugation, so many occupations from the Nazis going even further back than that. And then into the communist era, that their tr the idea of having truth in any way given to them. This is something that we have to deal with in this country right now, where it's, it's the idea of lies and the ability to just put that out there has, has literally um, cost us quite a bit in terms of our, our preservation of a constitution, in a sense. Um, but this is something that I've always had to discuss and talk about, even back when I was in Czechoslovakia, mm -hmm. that the truth is, is one of the reasons those countries really paid attention to the poets and to the musicians and to their words uh, and to the playwrights. You know, Hava was a playwright and um, they were able as writers to hide the truth in metaphors and in different scenes and only, I mean, some of the famous films were done in Czechoslovakia like Loves of a Blonde or The Fireman's Ball. The communists approved it <laughs> until someone later on said, you know what this is really about. <laughs> They're taking on your your rulership here, you know. 
So anyway, that's really why I think uh, those countries care about it. And uh, it's something that we have to be careful of, that we're not dumbing down our whole culture. Mm-hmm. And we have been for a while now. We've become a bit of a post-book reading generation because of high tech, because of so many other things that have entered what I call the new media that have come in. And uh, so we, we need to return to book reading yeah, and to yeah. novelists and the great prose writers who who gave us and the poets that gave us the truth. And this is where I want to be always, and that I know that I'm spreading that in foreign countries and that I become a voice of that. Yeah, that's always, it seems to me that that's fundamental to what poetry is, is, you know, I always say as I'm reading submissions, I have to read, you know, like 400 day poems. And all I'm doing is listening for honesty. Like there's some kind of of sense of honesty and that someone's telling the truth or at least their truth and not, not embellishing or faking it or, or hiding it or, you know, and that's what really poetry is about. So maybe we can have a, um, Yeah. And Tim, and that's why we have to protect the journalist. Mm-hmm. The journalists are the same. They have that same reason for being what they are, truth. That's what they try to get, the facts, put them on the page. And that's, that's in duress right now. That's under siege right now. Uh, we can't continue or allow it to, to have anyone continue that phrase, fake news. Yeah, it, yeah. It's really under what that really meant to the idea of free speech in the First Amendment rights, then they would they would stop believing in that. Yeah, you know, I the think that's a, yeah. The great journalists and the good media that are out there that care about it are still chasing down the facts as they as they collect it, not just as they think it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true, and it, I feel like it's a it's a it's a problem that I don't know what the solution is because. Um, you know, it's in the business model. You know, there used to be a time when when newspapers and things could afford to have, um, you know, foreign bureaus and, and actual stories. And now most of the stories I see are based on tweets that the journalists have found well, online. That's true. Yeah. Tim, I was asked by the Los Angeles Times to be a foreign correspondent to them. I had I had to go in 1988 to Beijing. I took my wife, my daughter, Tara. She was only two years old. And I was made a foreign correspondent to report back to the L.A. Times because I was reviewing for them, but to give them articles about the arts there. And I sent back one called the Renaissance in Chinese Literature because things had opened up and there were writers there who were were doing that. But I'll never forget the day I had to file my first report. And I went to the bureau there in Beijing. And uh, I think his name was Holland, his last name. He said to me, "Uh, "Okay, do you have the print? Yeah, I, I had typed everything up. He said, okay, I want you to type it in here right now. Okay. And he said, now push that button. Okay. Push. It's in print. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, it was in a Saturday edition. (laughs) I mean, and that was something that was closed down later, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that they they were, they really came after the journalist uh, later, but that was in 88. And what do you think happened? Uh, Not long after um, in 1989, the, the Tiananmen Square happened and, we were asked to leave. I was one of the Fulbright professors that was driven out of the country. And I'll never forget the fear we had that we were being taken to an airport. We were. And as it turns out, uh, they blamed us, the Fulbrighters, for what happened in Tiananmen Square. And I can say that my wife and I were tears in our eyes on June 1st or 3rd when we saw people dying. Mm-hmm. Because I myself told the students, this is a little known fact, but there was a culture minister who was very honest the uh, later, the older 
the older uh, octogenarians like uh, uh, Zhang Taoping and, and Li Pong were quite corrupt in many ways. So we said, look, if you want to honor him, take your poetry, take your fiction prose and your guitars and some tents and take it down into the square and do an old-fashioned sit-in like we did. You okay. see, we did that during the Vietnam War. And they trusted me enough to do it. And so when they got stopped, and not just stopped, but killed many of them, uh, I cried. I mean, because I felt, my God, I wish I could take those words back. But I knew what I meant might be good, and we thought we could. So anyway, we must remember what other countries and other writers, as well as citizens, must suffer that we don't. And we're in that danger again, where we have to worry about our rights to protest and to have you know, federal people coming in and shooting rubber bullets and the rest of the peaceful protestation. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering if, though, maybe we'll have a, a poetry Black renaissance. You know? important mm -hmm. to us right now. Yeah, yeah, like I think, you know, poetry hasn't mattered as much because we're so free to speak it. And I think, um, yeah. um, you know, maybe as the, the news media just sort of makes stuff up more and more and, and politicians make stuff up more and more, there'll be more of a place for poetry, hopefully. Yeah, well, I, I agree. I've never stopped uh, taking that on, and I, I still do. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, even the, let me see if I have uh, this poem Rage I wrote. I think I read it, not, I think I know I read it for you. It was at the uh, Poets Respond right after uh, George Floyd's killing. And uh, let me see if I can read that for you right now. The importance of us putting our voice out there uh, when such horrible, horrible, uh, uh, nothing more to say but to call it. Yeah, let me try to find it too. It's, it's somewhere in these papers. Yeah, it's in there, yeah. It's maybe about six poems in or so. It's called Rage. And, uh, and I gave an epigraph to it. Did you find it? Um, I'm still, still trying to find it. Let me see. The problem is I got the paper shuffled. <laughs> yeah, me too, and that's what I'm playing. I think it might have been after. Uh, okay, let me see. Which I'd like to read too, because that's what I wrote in Moscow that I read for Gorbachev. But let me do rage okay, first. Um, yeah, just start, and I'll find it by the time you get there. <laughs> okay. You get it? No, keep looking, because I'd rather have anybody viewing it to see the word. Okay, this was the epigraph, Rage is the title, for George Floyd and other innocents lost to us by racist Alice. There were many others who died before him. All day, I waited for breath to climb onto the tongue. Not easily, some might say, with a gasping stutter, sliding down the throat's ribbed spine, to find the word that refuses to be spoken. Its silence wrapped like shade in the lungs bowl of darkness. What could I know of nuance, its shape or sound, elusive like the scent of hatred, neither giving nor forgiving? How in moments of light, when love might have gardened the heart, a life fades amid the dying roots of breath. I would sooner reach out to a crow's beak or climb a steeple and believe as many do in the height and point of things. How in merciful times a syllable's utterance of guilt might suffice. All day I've wondered 
what in time is too long a time to kneel before a flower grave until a death is honored? What in time is too silent a word to ban the triggered power that breeds contempt for a generation's grief? For days I've wandered, searching the riddle of letters for any assemblage of sounds I could justify for an instance of repentance, for any gift of redemption I could set free from the depth of world pity. In a word, enough is not word enough to silence the rage sorrowed in this song. That was rage. That poem's from the Chanter's Read as well. Yeah, um, yeah rage. Yeah. But it's another version of it, but I... I change a couple words but um, the idea of it is is that we we always want to say enough is enough but that's not enough to say it yeah the actions that's what took people to the streets and i i really have appreciated that but uh, i'd like all to i don't know how much more time we would oh, have. We have about 20 minutes maybe so so um because when we were doing the uh, talk about going to russia or even czechoslovakia uh and i talked about the riots here uh, this was a poem. I have an epigraph, a long one here. It was first performed for Mikhail Gorbachev in Moscow, 1985. Bob Dylan, also a presenter, gifted my signed original copy to his son Jacob from the Wallflowers on his 16th birthday. He celebrated there with us in Tbilisi, Georgia. The poem, Bereaving the Homeless, later achieved distinction as one of Amazon's 100 best poems on Rhino Records, a century of recorded poetry. So this is called The Tense People of Beverly Hills. It's about the homeless, the new ecology of our time. And I, I have a lot of pride in the fact that it was first read there in Moscow. And it was just after we witnessed the riots. Okay, well, I find it, so we're all set. Okay. The Tense People of Beverly Hills. Faceless on the Boulevard of Mirrors. North along the flats of Rodeo Drive strip bald head mannequins. They come treading on the fears of high fashion, tents on their backs, and on their cheeks the beach black tar of tasteless chic. As if to dress were not enough, we would have them wipe our backhands slapped from their rainbow faces, and all through the supple stick lash wands of their eyes, all through the wind whiskers of fishbone and sour cream curdled by fame, they see along the deli box bins and fruit stalls of Wilshire Boulevard, the world and the room of their small walk space. They are never certain where they are merely asked to fill a role like memory in some thoughtful dream of place or live always short of major in some dying minor sort of way. As if to live were time enough, we would have an end beyond their means. Hours long they scrabble onto walls and mirrors the words they would like to leave us. The haunted prince of thought falls, drifting out of mind's possession like nostalgia or grief. The world has lost its faith. There are no hobo kings or pioneers late to live by. When they lie above the windy steam of sore great streams still and all mind gone, they warm their body holes to sleep. They wake the bee awake. In the dreams of many who never took the road to gypsy sorrow, breathing is enough. 
is a mistake to fill themselves alone, to fill their sky holes up with dark. There has never been a need for crying, the dying always say, once we move within the final inch of breath, there is no other. There are a million tenths in the universe with holes we mistake for stars. Such a beautiful image there at the end. Um, yeah, and what, what it simply was just the tents that we see now filtering through the whole country but from the homeless. And, and um, when I read that there, that was very much in everybody's mind because they were homeless all over Czechoslovakia, all over Europe as well. And uh, so I'm glad it rang true to so many people, enough that I know where the original copy actually is. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, uh, and, but it's an important poem to me always to read it because it's meant to somehow give us our conscience back in many ways. Yeah, um, I should say, um, if anybody has any questions for James Reagan, uh, let me know in the chat window. I have um, um, both looking at Facebook and um, YouTube, if, if anybody has anything. Um, a few people have mentioned um, your, your style of, of memorizing poems, which are really hard to do with non-rhymed poems. And it reminds me of, um, I just feel like, like you have a, a pride in your words that a lot of poets don't have, which is um, like you, I think that that's what has to do with memorizing, like, like the, the dignity that you feel when you read your words. There's no sense of like, you know, a lot of poets and myself included feel like, oh, wow, I'm trying to speak something original here. And you're sort of vulnerable in that act. But you have right. have sort of a surety behind what you've written. Um, um, can you talk a little bit about how you developed that or, um, or, or how you think well, of that? Well, let me, let me put it this way. First of all, I remember uh, being in Paris. I was having a drink at Dumago's. I looked off to my right, and there was Samuel Beckett writing at the Flora restaurant. <laughs> and I remember saying, I want to be that. I want to be a cafe writer. So that took me into a whole other world. When I began to write in cafes, I have them all over the world. My favorite cafes where I will go automatically. And I study people. It's like a library walking by. So in a sense, that allows me, first of all, to draw on experience that maybe other people wouldn't have witnessed. Well, to go with that, there has to be a language that somehow will fit. That has to fit that subject matter. And that's what, what I liked how you said that. But there's, there's an integrity in the language I try to choose. And... Um, and they're coming from the real experience of me watching them rather than just imagining of my being there. Another thing is this, in terms of reciting, uh, I like what T.S. Eliot said. He says, you must never remember the poem. You must relive the poem. Yeah. So when I read, I try to relive the experience that ignited the impulse behind the poem. That way, in every reading I do, it will be different because I will go back into it and I will feel things. I mean, there's a poem here that I wrote for my two daughters, Tara and Mara. And, uh, and uh, it's called The Astonishment of Living. And it's one that a lot of people have liked because, and then there's another one I have to read because uh, when the, the um, it's called A Good Sky, but I want to end on these two in a sense. Uh, but the astonishment of living had to do with my watching these two young girls at the end of the Charles Bridge in Prague. And these two, they were so young and the life they were showing and the joy that they were showing that as someone in my, you know, 
as I was growing older, they taught me again the astonishment of living. So the poem begins with those images. I saw beneath the spreading elm two talking girls weaving rainbows in their eyes. I saw their lives on opposite shores of the river yield up their buckets to the falls. Every drop was bathed in the fragrant shawls of Eglantine. Every leaf and wind rising up to comb each branch sent a whisper out along the slope. Let go. Let go the breath and rain in every strand of light in fog. Let go of the tongue's crow until it sings along with rocks and runnels as if it were divine. Let go of honored sky and earth. Let go the horizon in between. Lose all the sunlit undulations of the season's wheat. And sing. Sing out the song. Sing out. Sing out to. I, I got caught up in this. Sing out to seeds, to grass, and all the breeze into the pores of stones. Let go the sovereign moons of space, the celestial laws of aureoles, breathing out a planet and pulsing out its days. And free the century's melody as you would a line or burden down a well. Allow the astonishment of living, one reed or willow, feeding swallows through a hungry night until they weary of elation. Let all buckets fill, all loss be light. I saw two talking girls weaving rainbows in their eyes, and doddering in me their dreams, I grew astonished by all conception, by the frail grandeur of life. Another beautiful one. That's The Astonishment of Living. Uh, which book is that mm. from, Jim? Uh, that one should have been in either Illusions. I think it was in Illusions from Grove, Grove Atlantic. Well, it's a good segue to um, uh, Dick Westheimer's question. He asks, how has your poetic voice changed as you've grown older? Well, it has. It's, it's made me understand more, I think, about a larger world that I still need to see. The voice is changing because the subject matter pretty much what was, is guiding everything I do. Mm. Is the subject matter is changing, the voice, the, the, the language of it um, changes. So, but, but I think that I've become in these days, especially when I see language faltering, you know, I wrote essays called Language in the You Know Generation, you know, you know, where people, you know, it's like everything's like, like, yeah, you know, and people have lost the facility to come to some precision with understanding of language. And I'm trying to make sure that I go after that enough to bring it back so that people can hear a word or an image. That is something I wonder about. I um, It's a strange thing, but I remember I was watching um, Lee Harvey Oswald in a debate about communism. Mm -hmm. And and uh, this is, uh, you know, old archival footage. And people were saying he wasn't too bright. Um, and he was so much more eloquent than anybody on TV now in 1960 talking about communism in that, in that old clip on the radio. Um, why why right. do you think right. language has decayed like that? Well, I think, as I said earlier, that we've become a bit of a uh, post-book reading generation. People don't read as much. So their facility to speak words and even to spell correctly. I mean, even in my program at USC, uh, the first 20 years, I could tell the, you know, the area edition of everyone coming in. But then this last uh, five years or so, I could tell how many, my, my faculty didn't say, my God, this person can't spell, what's wrong? Because they're using their, 
their their computers, you know, dictionary that corrects them every time because uh, they're not reading words enough to know that gee, that doesn't look right on the page. It must be misspelled. So, book reading is one of the reasons I think we've lost, and we've gone to you know they're just I can I can we've lost the sense of communication. I give the story that I like to say about uh, being on an underground in London and. And uh, I watched across from me, uh, 11 people were lined up with their iPhones like this, with their iPhones like this, looking down, never knowing who was next to them, earphones to block out the world. That wasn't us in my generation. That was not us. We engaged. We brought people in. We embraced. So in walks a girl. There was a seat next to me. And all she did was give me a slight smile like you would if you're going to take a seat next to somebody. She sat down. I lean over to her and I say, look across from you. She looks over and she could see her eyes go down the 11 people. And she started laughing like I did. It looked like a director had set them up like that. And then she looks at me and says, are you American? I said, yeah. She says, what are you doing in London? I said, I'm going to read at the Pentameter's Theater tonight. I love the Pentameter's Theater. Can I come and be my guest? Can I bring my sister? Absolutely, bring her too. Afterward, we and a group went out. She's studying at Oxford, right? She loves poetry. She has her boyfriend and her. They get me invited to Oxford to do her <laughs> reading because of one smile. Oh, wow. One moment of communication. How many people are passing through life and forgetting to engage other people in correspondence and in language and in communication? Yeah, I feel like I watched that transition happen in real time because I had, um, you know, we had when my kids were, you know, two to four or so, we'd go to the playground all the time. And increasingly, just over right. the years, it got a little harder and a little harder to make small talk with the other parents. Like, they would just be staring at their phones. And, and I had some right. interesting conversations. But really, over those couple years, it became harder and harder yeah. to have anybody who was interested in the world except for in their phones. So it is, um, yeah, things are changing fast. This is what I like about Tim, about you, Tim, and what you do. This is your form of making communication happen. This is what has been lost in people like you or what I tried to do with taking my poetry to the world and not just sit here in, li in libraries only. Um, it's my effort to communicate and make sure that people understand that Americans still are worthy of a respect that we had over so many centuries and years. Um, and so, uh, but I, I remember, here's one that I wanna at least get this one in. This was one called A Good Sky and this was written uh, when, uh, first of all, when my brother and sister died about eight months apart. And also when Vaslav Havel died, I remember this is a poem that I've liked sending and giving it to those. And I just read it for the Czech ambassador, Slovak ambassador here, uh, uh, Shepalak, Pavel Shepalak, who just left the, uh, after a wonderful tour of, staying here in Los Angeles as a consul general. And I read it for him before he left because every, no matter what tragedy has befallen you, no matter how despondent you must feel, there's still a good sky to look forward to. And that was the whole purpose of the poem. That no matter what tragedy, no matter what we experience, there's still a good sky to look forward to. I show you a good sky. It could hold a fleet of geese above a kite, sipping in a breeze. Affoliate the wind with leaves of cherry wood and hedge. It will blanket your sleep 
that will blanket your sleep with mirrors of stars in the soft undressing of the night. It will love you solely through the Venus dawn, rubbing your eyes awake the moment before the day's light hangs its spars. I show you a good sky. It will rain its reflection on your one troubled eye, the one that blinks each time a hawk rants by. I am no one's romantic. No, I am the sky's shadow wish writing this only to breathe its light. I show you a falling sun, falling sun passing like a lover to be near you, allowing no star or bulb on the corner lamp to possess you as you are. Look, here I am, the sky's moon down. I will shave a horizon out of peaks like none your memory has ever carved. I show you a good sky. Its broad blue ribbon will wrap its mind around your eyes' imagination and tease you into smiles. Now, be celebration. Be, ce be patient. Celebrate the day and let your inspiration go out. And that's what I want to leave with everybody. <laughs> Well, speaking of communication, we want to get as many questions from the audience in as possible. And someone asked about that Beijing experience you had and whether or not you ended up writing a poem about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I wrote it. Uh, it's called The Debris Stone. It's a long one. It's a long poem. I mean, I, I could... Uh, but yeah, it's because I met with Sao Yu. Uh, I had the good fortune, the very good fortune, to not only meet but be friends with Arthur Miller while he was still alive and uh, he uh, he wrote a letter of introduction to me when I went to China so that I can meet some of the top playwrights. Sao Yu, Sao Yu was their top playwright major name and I met with him interviewed him for the Southern Cal Anthology and also uh, corresponded and he's the one that gave me the whole concept of the debris stone when he said nothing ceases to exist no matter what, the smallest mote of stone, mm -hmm. nothing ceases to exist from his, his whole sense of, of uh, grounding. So I wrote that, the debris stone, based on that, that whatever was happening with you, and it was about the whole Tiananmen Square, yeah. It was about that. Yeah, so I was and, on mute uh, for a second, but I was asking if, um, if he'd written about that Tiananmen Square story um, that we talked about. And um, another question, let me see. So going back again, um, Daniel, Ma, Daniel Mask over here um, wants to know about the, um, um, the Rilke on the conveyor belt poem. Um, mm -hmm. How did that, you, you mentioned that you actually saw Rilke coming around the conveyor belt, uh, but he wants to know how that poem came to be. What was the process of writing that like? And I'm curious too, because that's one of my favorite poems of yours. Yeah, I, well, you know, it's, it's me, even when I teach in the classroom, I'm telling people that basically you know you must know the uniqueness of life and you must capture those moments that can never happen anywhere again this was one of them where you can't walk away when i saw the people watching that book go around over and over and i was waiting to see who would pick it up because obviously it fell out of someone's backpack you mm -hmm. know and nobody seemed to pick it up and then i thought this has to be a poem about the the idea of uh, a book of poetry and what it means to people and uh and so that's what inspired the, the writing of the poem yeah. That, uh, yeah 
it gives the mind encouragement to survive. That's the mm -hmm. key line. Yeah. Then it gives me a chance to talk about censorship. You see, and we were coming back from Moscow where censorship was rampant, even though um, uh, uh, Gorbachev had been trying to get perestroika and, and to be working. The New York Times called me personally about a year later and they said, do you know you were part of history? And I said, what do you mean? We were there in the front row and so was the Washington Post the night that you that you four were reading, American poets were reading and, 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 uh, and also Seamus Haney from Ireland. We didn't know then as journalists what we know now that that was, uh, was uh, uh, Gorbachev's first foray into Glasnost was that mm. night. That made all the sense in the world. Yeah, yeah, wow. Because we were told by the, this is true, we were told by the State Department not to go. I mean, we were told not to go. First of all, Dylan, they're going to use you. They're going to do this. They're going to follow you. They're going to do this and that. It didn't happen. No one censored me. I read those poems that I read. We each had five poems. Dylan had five songs. And no one ever changed a word or made me not read anything. So that was the first night that, uh, that's what he had in mind, I think, Gorbachev, to bring artists from all over to uh, speak their truths without being hampered, you know. Uh, yeah. So that, that was the other reason. And then also the idea of the, of the censorship that, and I'm trying to remember that congressman that introduced that, but it was rampant in our own country, you know. Uh, one more audience question I wanted to pass along. Uh, Maureen Grady asks, uh, what is your oh, feeling Maureen, about... Oh, Maureen, hi. Say hi. hello to that beautiful girl. Woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she asks, what is your feeling about human nature itself? Good or evil at its root? Uh, look, I, I've, th that's a hard it question. Is, I know. just have <laughs> a simple answer for. Uh, first of all, you know, uh, when I would read Nietzsche uh, and when I was reading The Existential authors and writers, Sartre and the rest of them through my, I did philosophy as a minor in my college. I was so aware of what um, um, Nietzsche talked about when he said that we have two forces within us and that's the irrational and the rational self always tugging with each other. And sometimes the rational will win out and sometimes the irrational does. And so sometimes I'm looking at human nature as being that, that uh, there's, to me, a, a, an inherent grounding of moral, morality in each person. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in, in our development through parentage, through education, through ideologies, somewhere through that, those two forces begin to conflict with each other. And they grow more and more to become racism or to become ideologically, you know, uh, like... Total, um, how would you say it, totalitarian governments. Uh, but, but to answer the question as simply as I can, I personally believe that we all have a moral grounding of goodness. I personally want to believe mm -hmm. that. And I live my life that way. I care about people. I want to help and move people in those directions. I think we've had many leaders who feel the same way, knowing that there is that force still combating each other in, in us. Yeah, yeah, I'm reminded and of the... What makes a perfectly reasonable person suddenly strike out with a fist at somebody that would never have done it before? Mm -hmm. See, that's that, that thing pulling yeah, at each yeah. other. Yeah, I'm reminded of the, uh, the young quote. Um, he says, um, no one can reach heaven unless uh, his shadow stretches all the way to hell. And that's those two forces yeah. at play in all of us. We have the shadow. Yeah, yeah. Right. 
It's a good question for me. It is, yeah, definitely. Um, Well, we're just about out of time. Do you want to finish out with one last poem? Well, uh, let me do uh, this one. It's more of a uh, uh, one that was in in uh, in the uh, in rattle that I rather liked. It's called "Taming the Sloth." Okay. Yeah, and this is one that uh, I remember my daughter Tara coming home and she said to me, "This answers the other question: how we come to poems and titles." She just said to me, "Oh, I'm tired of I'm tired of playing with sloths." <laughs> <laughs> and she explained how, how she spent the whole day dealing with them. So I, I taming the sloth became the title. And so it's, it has some, I don't know how long I can play with the sloth. How long I can wait to time his glide along the space no wider than its bombless face. As if the air had softened long enough to slow each arm's motion to an easy slide as if by committing each inch of a leg to a longer stroll, he'd be cool and jive, just as we'd rehearsed for hours, the slinky hitching up of knees to gather up his fur like bunched underwear. He's stalling now for the little push my hand decides to get a rhythm going, to quicken the pace, to push ahead just enough to score the next ride. How long can I stand the indifference of his cold stare burrowed into mine? As if he's judging a dance where no one commits to lead or count in step. I don't know how long he can lie in one place, cheering his lack of progress. Now he's rolling round to his spine, seeing the world from the bottom up, believing this is knowledge of a kind, having spent his clowning days hanging downward by his toes, trolling the uncertainties of ground, as if by giving up a life of swinging free across the long, thin avenue of sky, he could teach me need, the patience to dream, how to slouch into the future with the soft tongue peddling of my breath push from behind. I wonder if that was taming the sloth. You tell believe in dreams. We ought to get back to that, too. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jim. It's been a great, great to hear, talk to you again and, um, and hear your just wonderful poems that you, that you read with such beauty, too. Thank you very much, Tim, for inviting me and for having me and for your audience, those who, who uh, came in to join us. Yeah, definitely our pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Yes, that was James Reagan um, with his newest book, which I'm not sure where I put it. Ah, here it is. Uh, the chant, the chanters read, from um, from um, salmon poetry. You can find that at salmonpoetry.com. Salmonpoetry.com is the chanters read, James Reagan's newest book, and um, and Caitlin Buxbaum fixed my uh, quote uh, from. Um, from young it was no tree it is said can grow to heaven unless its roots reach down to hell which is much better than my ugly paraphrase thanks caitlin um, now let's move on to our open mic portion of the night as always um if you would like to participate um gotta say goodbye to jim unfortunately but um if you would like to participate the phone number is up there it's 818-850-7727 just call, let it ring a few times, and um, 
I will call you back when the time is right for your prompt poem. And the prompt, once again this week, was uh, write a poem about a Greek god or goddess. Um, if you, even better than phone, is Skype. And that's uh, all one word, rattle poetry, where you can find us. Send me a chat message over Skype. And uh, let me know you'd like me to call you. And I will call you back when the time is right. And you can email your poem so everybody can read along to openmic at rattle.com. So um, let's see. So once again, this week, the, um, the prompt was um, write a poem about a Greek god or goddess. Um, and this week, I didn't manage to write a poem, unfortunately. I'm sorry about that. This is production week for me, so I'm working like 60 hours a week. If you can't tell, I'm kind of tired. Uh, but here's Megan's poem. Megan came through, and uh, her poem is Astrea Relocates. And from Wikipedia, here's the uh, explanation. Astrea, the celestial virgin, was the last of the immortals to live with humans during the Golden Age. According to Ovid, Astrea abandoned the earth during the Iron Age. Fleeing from the new wickedness of humanity, she ascended to heaven to become the constellation Virgo. That's interesting. As I've mentioned on the show, I know nothing about um, Greek mythology. Um, it's one of those big black holes in my brain where I've never learned anything about it. So I'd never heard of Astrea before. Um, apparently that's the, the Virgo constellation. Um, and here's Megan's poem. This is Astrea Relocates. I'll miss it, yes, roses and worms. Bread and rain, the way babies smell, the way men taste. You might argue that the sacred and profane are two sides of the same coin interlaced. But this bloody harvest isn't worth what I reap. The dead I step over to pick sour fruit. I've seen things that would make Zeus weep. A goddess is a tricky thing to uproot. But I pluck myself out like a stubborn weed, and it's easy and sweet to say goodbye. Floating like a scattered seed, I leave peaches and lakes, desert and sky. My new place is dark, but I make it shine. I tell myself you are never really mine. There you go. There's a Megan's poem about a Greek god or goddess, a sonnet. You know, back in the day, Megan never wrote in form. And now she's writing in form all the time, so that's cool to see too. Thanks, Megan, for that. Now let's see what you have to uh, share with us tonight. Um, we had a few people call in while we were going. Um, try to go in the order they were received. And first up is Caitlin Buxbaum. Let me find Caitlin's poem. Hello. Hello, Caitlin. How are you doing tonight? Good. We had a nice, warm, sunny day up here today. So is that unusual this time of year? Um, kind of. It seems like historically. Starting around July, it's pretty much just rain. Oh, really? <laughs> for, and not hot. But today was nice. And I've been to a lot of poetry things online today. So, yay. Lots That's of awesome. good things. Good day for poetry. So, what was your uh, your Greek god or goddess? Um, so, I sort of wrote about Artemis. Um, this poem was doing, like, triple duty for me because it was on a current event. Um, and I was also experimenting with forms. And um, I've always liked the name Artemis. I am also woefully uneducated in terms of mythology. Mm -hmm. um, but I have uh, this book is actually, I think my mom's from like high school. It's just called Mythology by Edith Hamilton. Interesting. Um, 
And I guess she's like one of the, the experts on that. So anyway, I just flipped through the first few pages and I was like, oh, there's a little line about Artemis um, that I liked that I stole. <laughs> so <laughs> in what form is it? It looks like it's um, like increasing it's syllables Two, yeah so the first half is an ethery which is um 10 lot the first 10 lines mm -hmm. um and then the second half is a nonet which i think somebody did last yeah week. megan did a nonet last week that's yeah, that's what exactly. it was yeah so mm -hmm. um i thought that they fit well together and worked for the subject so 10 lines increasing and then nine lines decreasing in terms of syllables very cool okay so let's let's hear it so it's called, Even the Olympians Put One Foot in Front of the Other, for Christy Marvin. I hope it won't offend too much to say you remind me of Artemis, the goddess, lover of woods and the wild chase over the mountain, records in your pocket and the Bible at your breast. You are not one to be vengeful, though fierce might well describe your lithe stride as you close in on each title. You require no sacrifice, but of your own body, to the elements, driven by love of nature and its God. Very cool. Thanks, Caitlin. That was, uh, even the Olympians put one foot in front of the other. Excellent. Excellent poem. Thank you. And just for a little bit more context, um, Christy is uh, a really big mountain runner up here um, mm. and we just had this 14 mile mountain race on sunday um she just won it for the sixth time um and so i i wanted to kind of congratulate her on that through this poem but the title i actually took from a quote um she said to me back when i was a reporter and interviewed her like that was one of my very oh, wow. early stories and so it was fun to like bring all of those elements together for this yeah that is really cool i love that yeah thanks i'm glad you i glad you Glad you explained that. Yeah. Well, cool. it was fun to share. <laughs> Have a good night. Yeah, you too. Bye. Okay, let's see. Let's do Savannah Woods. And once again, if I call you, uh, make sure you click off your YouTube or Facebook or whatever stream so it's not echoed in the background. I'm calling from like 30 seconds ahead or so, or maybe a minute, depending on how much buffering is going on. But we're calling uh, Savannah Woods right now. Hopefully I can find. Hey, Savannah. Good to see you again. Hey. Yeah. Oh, we see you this time. Yeah. Last time we didn't see you. We just heard you. Yeah. Now you can see me. I got um, I got Skype installed. Awesome. Well, that is great. I'm really glad that we got to do it. Okay. Here's your poem. I found it. Um, and you have a you have the update. I do. I have the update. Decided to spell her name differently. Yeah. Awesome. So I just thought a K was better. Yeah, it looks better. It looks interesting. Yeah, that way. So, so who is uh, Hecate? I'm, it's another. I don't. I know nothing about the Hecate. Greeks. So uh, Hecate, Hecate is, okay. Yeah, Hecate. It's a Greek pronunciation. Real fun. Um, she is a goddess that isn't spoken of very much. She resides in the underworld she's the goddess of many things a lot of greek gods have a lot of titles um and one of my favorite of hers is she is a moon goddess mm. but not like the goddess selene selene is the you know the supreme moon goddess that we think of she is the goddess of the dark side of the oh moon. interesting um she's also the goddess of witches and witchcraft and um, 
and my poem, which focuses kind of on her being um, a maiden goddess. Interesting. Well, it's up for everybody. So go ahead whenever you're ready. Awesome. Hecate, goddess of night, invisible goddess. Why do you lie in shadows? Hecate, goddess of the moon, but only beside unseen. Why do you lie in shadows? Hecate, goddess of witches, goddess of magic. Why do you lie in shadows? Hecate, maiden goddess, oracles say you wander through heaven and hell with three heads and a bull's face and a quiver of golden arrows. Why do you lie in shadows? Maidenhood is a rarity, for gods love nothing more than to consume and take and rape, and those gods shine so brightly, illuminating the world with their power splendor and wrath and unending dissatisfaction and need need that can only be momentarily satiated by supple pliable flesh but the gods are hunters and prey tastes so much better if it's a challenge a battle and finally a submission with no admission of guilt goddess of women and scorned, beloved goddess of Medea, Medea who watched as her husband abandoned her and their progeny, Jason, great-grandson of Hermes, bathed in sunlight, shining golden, claimed as a hero. Did you see Hermes in his face, Hecate? Did you try to warn her? Hecate, did you weep as you watched your beloved, Medea, slaughter her own babes with faces that looked so much like the gods Medea feared they would grow to be like their father god touched spiteful entitled and strong enough to overpower the unwilling Hecate did you fear too Hecate Goddess of night, invisible goddess, goddess of the unseen moon, goddess of magic and witchcraft, goddess of women scorned Maiden, why do you lie in shadows? Hecate, you laugh mournfully, your eyes reflecting stars and galaxies, and say what you alone know. There is less to fear in the solitude of shadows than in the shining golden light of the gods. Very cool. Yeah, it was great to learn about Hecate. Interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And that was uh, Savannah Woods. And you can find Savannah at savwithlove, S-A-V-with-love.co.co. Um, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Savannah. Glad you could call in. No problem. Uh, you'll see me regularly, I hope. Awesome, yeah, I hope so too. Bye. Later days. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, sorry, I was trying to get her her, um, her face up there because she had a good, um, good camera angle that it could fit next to the text, but I messed that up. So sorry about that. Um, okay. Let me, um, do, um, let's see. Let's call Cameron Gray. This is interesting. I'm learning a lot about Greek gods and goddesses already. Hello. Hey, Cameron, this is Tim. Did you want to share your poem? Yes, I did. 
Okay, cool. And and what was your um, Greek god or goddess? I wrote about Hephaestus. Hephaestus. See, I, I know nothing about any of these. It's so cool. Okay, so what what is Hephaestus about? <laughs> uh, Hephaestus was the god of fire and blacksmithing. He was the only god that they put to work, <laughs> and uh, they all kind of looked down on him because he was dirty. Oh, interesting. So, but uh, <laughs> let me. Uh, I'll okay. go ahead and read it whenever you're ready. Yeah, go ahead. I just have to switch to that screen. There we go. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Hephaestus. Created from malice, you were thrown from that palace all the way down to the earth. With a walking cane, your legs did train, though you were labeled lame from birth. But observe the shield made for Achilles to wield, more breathtaking than any canvas. With silver all around, a scene can be found using hammer and fire as your brush. And it must cut like a knife to have the perfect wife. I bet you wish she didn't feel chained. Love nor time could change her mind. Aphrodite's favor, never to be gained. Handmaidens from gold, more beauty to behold, for you had to make your own friends. It's the eternal plot of an ugly god. On your skills, your fate depends. So you fulfill their needs for filigrees of every shape and size. Still, it will not fade what their minds have made behind those disdainful eyes. Very nice. Love the meter and rhyme. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was Cameron Gray with uh, Hephaestus. Am I saying that right? Hephaestus. See, I can't even say Greek gods, (laughs) let alone know who they are. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was cool. Thank you. Good night. Okay. Um... Let's see. Um, let's do. We haven't had Vicky Miko on. Let's try Vicky. Um, and she has the Emperor Tarot. Um, let me see if I can get. Okay, let's call it Vicky and see if if we can get her. Vicky, can you hear me already? Vicky, you there? Oh, here you go. Yeah. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Hi. Good. Wow, these poems are just incredible. I just, I love them, every single Me too. one. This has been a lot of fun already tonight. Yeah, thank you. Um, so so which, which Greek uh, god or goddess did you write about? Well, it's uh, tarot in uh, the form of myth. And I wrote about the emperor. And the emperor in mythology is supposed to signify Zeus. And he is the god of inspiration and confidence and authority, authority and self-sufficient authority for, for yourself mainly. But my poem is um, kind of, it's, it's, uh, it's from last, it's further from last week because uh, I never wrote a limerick before. So it's a limerick. And uh, it's also visual art. Yeah, I see that too. That's really cool. Um, So I have it up for everybody uh, whenever you're ready. Okay. The emperor reigns from a grand oak willow tree. Unwavering and bold, he conquers adversity. Not arrogant, but proud, he gathers his crowd. Branches bow low and lift him to high majesty. Very cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I love the art, too. 
Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Vicky. Thank you. Have a good night. Mm, thanks. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, let's do, let's call it Maribraid Car. Find Maribraid's poem. Hello. Hey, it's Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share your poem this week? Yes, yes I did. Okay, cool. And this is Maribade Carr. And where, where, where are you calling from, Maribade? Uh, South Carolina. Ah, that's right. Okay. Um, so your poem was Aletheia, another, yet another god I know nothing about, which proves how little I know. Um, so what is <laughs> Aletheia? Uh, what does Aletheia do? Uh, she is the goddess of uh, childbirth. Oh, interesting. So, how many, yeah. How many Greek gods and goddesses are there? Does anybody have a count? Is it thousands? I don't know. There, there were so many when I looked, um, when I was trying to find one. Um, and I guess there's a bunch of different ones for each thing, and that's why usually we only hear about the main ones for mm -hmm. each thing. But, yeah, so this one, she's, um, so she helps with labor, um, or if she's in a bad mood, she will slow labor, um, and I'm uh, in my last trimester of pregnancy oh, wow. right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Congratulations. That's last, amazing. Yeah. When, when do you do? Um, October 10th. Awesome. So well, 10 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's great. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's up yeah. whenever you're ready. Okay. Yep. She will bring you to me, glossy and dashing, out of you. My breath thick and dense like a fog. She will wait though she tries to push you now, and I am plump and pulsing already, recording the twinges of adjustment, googling the weeks and your size, holding the pictures of you between my fingers, asking you to listen carefully, rest gently on my bladder. I should be asking her to come, not too soon, to make me into a sloth, then imbue me with a quickening, only after 40 weeks has crawled each inch of me. Oh, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Is this your first child coming up? No, this is my fourth. Okay, wow. Well, congratulations. That is awesome. Um, Thank you. Excellent poem. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Good night. Bye. Okay, um, we have a little more time. Let's see. Let's do this seven, this 978 number. I don't know who that is. going to make sure to put uh, whoever this is in my phone book. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? Yes, this is hey. Brenda Komarski. Ah, hey, Brenda. Good to hear from you. Let me try to find, let's see. Yeah, I sent it to... Um... Yeah, I got it out here. Okay. Okay, cool. okay. to Nyx, goddess of night. Yes, and, and let me tell you, it was very hard to pick part of her story to, to write about because there, she has so many children. And anyway, so I only picked one and, and I'll, I'll read it okay. <laughs> <laughs> to nix goddess of night born of chaos you and your brother darkness birthed the day in you i dream light and when i wake you are gone your daughter takes my hand leads me back to you her mother's loving arms excellent thanks for a very very nice condensed poem to nix <laughs> goddess of night yeah, I, yeah, like I said, it, it, I had to condense because she has so many stories. Um, she's the only goddess that Zeus was scared of because oh, one really? of her children was Hypnos, 
who put Zeus to sleep. Um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, yeah it was, so, uh, this was fun. This yeah. was fun. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Um, someone else just called. Let's see. Let's do Kathy Gibbon. She hasn't been on in a while. She's called a bunch of times tonight too. So make sure we get to Kathy. Find Kathy's poem too while we're letting the phone ring here. Hey, Kathy, it's Tim uh, with Rattle. Did you want to share your poem? Sure, Tim. I'd love to. Great. And how are things doing down there in Houston? Well, we're doing okay. We're huddling in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cuddling in at home. And I just wanted to say thank you for tonight's reading, James Reagan. It was just uh, um, reading my poem will seem frivolous after hearing I, I i came to tears at least twice during his reading so thank you for that oh yeah my pleasure he's one of the most um you know austere elegant kind of poets writing today i think um yeah sure yeah yeah um so so crazy and amazing graces what are those two of the graces uh, well, actually, the God, and uh, this is a, uh, inspired by an opera, and I'm neither a student of opera nor of Greek mythology, and um, Orfeo and Eurydice, neither of whom are gods, or, or, Orpheus was the greatest mortal musician, but he and his beloved were sort of toyed with by the gods, apparently, or... Um, and and I came out of the opera that I had seen that inspired this, and it was like I was just puzzled by the capricious nature of, or the random or fickle or sometimes cruel nature of the dictates and desires of the gods. And so that's where this is coming from. And sometimes it even seems like it's a ploy for uh, loyalty from subjects, but not to get into current events or anything. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah. But and also the the title and the last line are kind of an homage to a film from 1980 called The Gods Must Be Crazy, and in that I took a lesson that beware gifts from above and beyond, and sometimes they come with caveats. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Anyway, <laughs> okay, let's hear it. Okay, crazy and amazing graces. Opera sings to me personally and to all who enter this small space intimately. Orfeo and his beloved Eurydice marry and rejoice momentarily till fickle fate strikes her dead at their wedding. Orfeo vows to the goddess Amore that he will bring Eurydice back intrepidly, and his lyre allows the sleeping dog to lie as he ventures into Hades for his love. But there's a catch, inevitably, He's not allowed to hold her or behold her until he brings her back from below, you know, or she will die anew, yet he can't help but look foolishly. And she dies once again, and he grieves, and he moans, and he wants to die himself, and he plays and sings and begs, and then Amore hears his prayer, and she honors his last wishes, and Eurydice comes alive. And all rejoice once more until the next time at the beck and call and whim and fancy of those gods who must be crazy. Yeah, you can hear the, the, the contemporary events kind of undertones in that one for sure. Thanks so much for sharing that, Kathy. Thank you, Tim. Okay, yeah. have a good evening. Yeah, you Bye. too. Bye. Okay, well, there are uh, several people still um, in line, but but I really have to get going tonight. I'm sorry I can't get to everybody. 
Um, I the tomorrow or tonight before I go to bed is the um, deadline for me to get the fall issue and chapbook to the printer. So I'm going to be up really late tonight, and i got to get the kids to bed and work on that. Um, but thanks to everybody who shared your poems. Um, really wonderful stuff. I like this prompt a lot. I wish I could have written a poem, but I just did not have time. Um, but for next week, um, the prompt is... Um, Write a poem for which the title is a line from your favorite song. That's next week's prompt. That's Megan's prompt. Write a poem for which the title is a line from your favorite song. And uh, before I do that, I'm going to have to figure out what my favorite song actually is. I don't know if I have a favorite song. I always have trouble uh, figuring out what like a favorite of anything is. Like My kids are always asking like, what my favorite color is. And I don't even understand, I guess, the concept of favorite. It doesn't really work with my brain or something. Um, what would my favorite song be? I don't know. Well, I'll figure it out and then try to write something. Um, but that is your task for this week. Uh, write a poem for which the title is a line from your favorite song. And uh, next week's guest is going to be Rena P. Espayat. Um, we interviewed her in Rattle, I think, number 38. Uh, we published her frequently. Um, we have a translation of her, um, of um, uh, Bianin. What is her first name? Uh, a Spanish poet that Rena did. Um, um, in the fall issue coming up that I'm working on tonight. Um, her most recent book is And After All. She's a wonderful formal poet, uh, translator, um, and really one of the, the most wonderful people I know. I, I, I love Rena. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Rena next week. That's Tuesday, August 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, I will see you then. Hope you have a great night. I'll see you also for uh, the Critique of the Week on um, Friday at 2 p.m. as always, and uh, the Open Mic Show. We're going to do a half an hour every Sunday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. But uh, next up on the Rattlecast is uh, once again Rena P. Espayat. Uh, we'll see you then. Hope you have a great night. Uh, talk to you soon. Goodbye.